Welcome to What's Working in Marketing, a podcast for marketers that uncovers what's working across the digital landscape by tapping into the world's best data-backed research and through candid conversations with industry experts. I'm your host, Charlie Grinnell. On this episode, I'm joined by Eric Toda, former head of marketing at Hill City and global head of social marketing at Airbnb. Thanks so much for joining me today, Eric. Yeah, thanks for having me, Charlie. It's good to be here. So I started following you online long before we actually met, and it was because you'd worked at some amazing brands over your, the, your career, such as Facebook, Nike, and Snapchat, to name a few. I want to go back to the beginning. That's how I typically start these interviews is going back to the beginning and getting an understanding of how did you get your start into marketing and how has it progressed kind of throughout your career? Yeah. Um, my foray into marketing is, is accidental. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's accidental. And I always say this because a lot of people coming from college into marketing, it's very calculated. They, study marketing courses or economic courses, business courses, then they go into an ad agency. Uh, and then after spending years in an ad agency, learning how the marketing world works, they go into client side brand, right? And that's normally the trajectory that, that you see in, in a more traditional sense. And, and I love that trajectory. I think that's defined the industry for the past you know, five decades. Um, I like to say that because my foray into the industry was accidental. I was a, I was a, a pre-law major. I, 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 had, I had every intention to become an estate and probate lawyer. Um, mm-hmm. so, so people that do wills, trusts, you know, all that, all that really, yeah, really very exciting, exciting. Very exciting stuff. I didn't know why I was going into that field. Uh, I just knew that I was really good at studying, really good at reading uh, and taking tests. And so I triple majored in political science, uh, criminal justice and psychology at San Francisco State University. Uh, I graduated top of my class, uh, and I applied to law school, got into law school, and I realized that midway through starting the process to go to law school, that this wasn't the route for me. Like this, this, it wasn't giving me the type of energy that I was hoping for. Um, luckily for me, uh, my girlfriend at the time, uh, she told me that you know, maybe you shouldn't be a lawyer. Maybe you should work in tech. And at the time, tech was just kind of coming back from 1.0, right? You started to have some little social media companies like a MySpace or a Fenster start to pop up. Facebook was just still colleges. And she was like, maybe you should work for a tech company. And so I decided to step away from law school and test the job market. I tested the job market, I think, in truly the best time uh, in the entire, in the entire world. And that was in 2008, in the middle of the economic recession of, <laughs> of, of, of the U.S. And I, I applied to like 200 jobs from like Pete's Coffee to the mayor's office, you know, to every odd job I could possibly find. 200? 200. 200. Whoa. And yeah, 200. Cause like I, I really needed to find a job. I had too much pride to take money from my parents. And I had these, I had these three degrees that, meant nothing uh, <laughs> if, I, if I didn't go to law school. And so I was like, I need to find a job, man. And crazy, the crazy thing about that is like every single company that I applied to, it's like, no, sorry, we're not hiring right now. But the one, the one company, I swear, this is so crazy. The one company that, that reached out and said, yeah, well, let's have a chat, was a company called Facebook. And it was in 2008. And crazy. I, I started telling people, I was like, this is, this is, I was like, Facebook's reaching out. Like Facebook's reaching out. Like, I think I'm going to apply. And all my friends, all my friends were like, don't go to Facebook. Facebook is too tiny. It's right is over. MySpace is bigger than it. Friendster is bigger than it. Yahoo's trying to buy it. Like it's over. Uh, my parents were like, this is a terrible decision. You should have went to law school. Um, <laughs> as typical I, parents say. As typical parents say, especially like my mom is an immigrant, so she's like, she's all about like postgraduate degrees. Yeah. I told her and I told them, I was like, listen, I had no other options. I had no options right now. I have to, like, I have to see where this goes. And listen, if it, if it does fail, uh, I'll go, I'll, I'll try law school again. But my only goal right now is to get a job so I can save up money because I want to buy a wedding ring. Um, and I remember telling that to like 20 people. I was like, I want to buy a wedding ring, all that stuff. Um, obviously 
Facebook didn't didn't go away. It became bigger. It succeeded. Uh, it succeeded almost every single threat that that came at it. And ultimately, uh, I married my girlfriend, and she's now my wife. And actually, today is our nine-year wedding anniversary. Well, happy anniversary. <laughs> yeah. But that was the first. So, so that was the first foray into marketing because the job that I took was on the advertising team. I was literally copying and pasting lines of code to put ads live from Microsoft, from Nike, from Amazon, and they were little banners. And nothing was automated. So if you ever saw an ad on, the, on, on, on Facebook in 2008, 2009, I, me and like 10 other people put it there. We put it there. <laughs> manually. Um, very manually. And, <laughs> and, and I loved it. I thought it was the greatest job ever because I was working with brands. And because you had a sales team out in the market, they were asking me, are the ads working? What can they be doing better? And we're launching new products like literally every single day. Can you help articulate to these brands what these new products mean to those brands and how they can use them? The, a job like this never existed, but it slowly became like a creative job in which I was talking to brands about being on Facebook, having a page, having a presence, using ads, using organic, and really creating that notion of social media before it was even a term. Um, and that was fantastic to me because it, I wasn't at an agency. Mm-hmm. I wasn't at a brand. It was something different. And I started to fall in love with the notion of working with brands and working for a brand and working in marketing to the point where towards my fourth year, third year of, uh, of Facebook, uh, I was asked to be on a team that would run its own specific marketing campaign to celebrate 1 billion users. I got to work with a big agency. Uh, I got to, you know, help with the media plan. Uh, I got to work on a brief. I got to set up everything and I saw what it was like to be uh, a client. And I fell deeper in love with marketing then to the mm-hmm. point where I knew that I wanted to find more experiences like that. And, you know, ultimately that's what led me to Nike. But, you know, I think looking at, looking back on my origin story, it's by accident. It was totally by accident. It was totally by opportunity, uh, and I was and I I was truly just driven because I wanted to buy a wedding ring for my girlfriend. Yeah, I mean it's such a great story. I find it's you're not the first person who has told me that they've got into marketing by accident, and I find that like that is the trend that I'm starting to see. Is some people are like, yeah, I just kind of ended up here, <laughs> and and yeah. this way. So it's it's interesting to hear you say that, and I think you know, that spot that you were in at Facebook during that period of time is so unique. And I can understand how impactful or influential that that has probably been on your entire career, because like, you were literally, you know, in the engine room, so to speak, <laughs> uh, powering the, the, the thing that was going to become kind of make social media this great big thing. So yeah, I, I understand how that probably has shaped your view on things as a, as a marketer, as a business person, that sort of thing. I think it's interesting, right? I think like a lot of people ask me like where I got my training from because the way I look at marketing, it's very different from your traditional marketer. They look Mm -hmm. at things in a very structured process way, get your insight, you know, build your brief, talk to the agency and then set it live. For me, that timeline of doing all those things is so much more condensed because I grew up in a time, you know, through social media and through Facebook to where one person can do all those things. Mm And so from every company I've ever been a part of, I've always carried with me this like scrappy data, data driven, but still a marketer, still mm-hmm. very emotive, you know, still, still very romantic in, in, in the storytelling, but with numbers and with process and with speed that, you know, traditional marketers, if they're not used to this, like they would, they would see this as very different, mm-hmm. you know, from 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 a marketing person, but I think that's the new wave. I honestly think that's the new. Wave. I've seen more marketers like me than I have what I just described, uh, mm-hmm. and that's because people are creating. People are creating. They're coming up from different backgrounds. They they don't have traditional backgrounds, and, and I love that because I think that I think those non traditional backgrounds are actually more diverse people, and that's something that I deeply care about. That's something that drives their creativity, and uh, I think it's interesting the way it's evolving. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that that segues nicely into my, my next question is this unique perspective that you had in that you've sat kind of on the tech side of things. I'm using air quotes here, but the tech side, with, you know, Facebook, Snapchat, but then very much on like 
the brand side with the Nikes, the Airbnbs, the Hill City. What have you learned, and you kind of alluded to it a little earlier, what have you learned when it comes to striking a balance of like brand-focused marketing and performance-focused marketing? Because there is definitely kind of two camps out there. Yeah, yeah. There, there, there are definitely two camps out there. And one of the things I bring with me everywhere I go is that I don't think those two camps sit separately. I, I always believe that those two camps sit next to each other. I think mm-hmm. that they that they that they help each other. They're, they're more symbiotic than than you can believe. I think there is a notion. Uh, if if I'm a performance person, I think there is a notion that that brand could be you know fluffy. It could be wasteful. It, it you know it could be unmeasured. Um, I think from a brand person point of view, performance and growth could be seen as too data driven, too robotic, too you know too too automated. I don't. I personally, my own personal belief, I don't believe any of those things. I believe that branded performance can go hand in hand and operate symbiotically throughout a consumer journey. Mm-hmm. Like I think that I think that they are created for different points in the in the consumer journey, and they should never ever deviate from a higher a higher level brand understanding of how you introduce the brand to you. Meaning, if I'm if I'm Nike. And I'm just speaking to you about a brand campaign uh, about the new Jordan shoes. By the time you see a performance and growth ad, you should still see a trickle down of that narrative. You should, see, you should still see a trickle down of that creative. You shouldn't see something completely different from the website, scraped and like looks like some like crazy pixelization of the shoe. No, 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 no. You should be seeing you. You should be seeing an integrated point of view that just carries on the storyline and just brings you along to that that conversion path. So. I think that what I've learned is that I don't think it's separate things. I, I've always believed that uh, they were one of a kind and, mm-hmm. and, they, and they always work together. And I think you're seeing a lot of CMOs um, come from a background like that where they have been on the more of the digital media and, and social side where that's just always the case, you know? And I think that the more CMOs that are, are, are pushing that point of view forward, the more you're going to see performance and growth become one. Mm-hmm. That, that makes a ton of sense. And it's definitely something that we're seeing is that the analogy that I've used in the past with, with clients has, has been the CMO almost being like the conductor of the orchestra, so to speak. Right. And then you have your, your creative folks, your data folks, your brand folks, but the band as a whole or the orchestra as a whole sounds great when the CMO is able to make all those different things come together, um, yep. produce a great sound. And so, do you can you talk a little bit about like what are the skill sets needed to be able to bring people together like that right because it is it is a, f- a few different backgrounds that have to come together to pull that all off yeah um now listen I, what i'm going to tell you is is obviously from my perspective I'm, I'm no expert at it um like my career has only been a little bit over 10 years long, but, uh, but yeah, you know, you've worked I, in some I, really cool places with some smart people. <laughs> I have, I have, but I've seen, I think the biggest thing for me, and I learned this really early on in my career is the way you bring people together is to understand what they do every single day, because you develop a level of empathy of what they deal with, what they, what they stress out about the struggles, the, the wins that they've had to know, Every single organization and what they do, what they provide to the business allows you to see the entire puzzle. And it's your job to put the puzzle together. Mm-hmm. I think too often you have leaders that come in that have preconceived notion of what specific organizations do, what they don't do, et cetera. And because of that, you get siloed work, you get people not working with each other, et cetera. And, and, and I think that's a pretty old school point of view. Um, I, I try my best to understand literally every single person's job, be able to try to do the job so that I, so that I, I know what it's like to sit where they sit to do what they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I was taught really early, like you should be able, as a leader, you should be able to do what your lowest level employee can do just as good as they can. Mm-hmm. That should be something you strive for. What you shouldn't strive for is how high you can go and the bonuses you could get, but you should strive for being able to do what your most entry-level person does and do it just as good as them. And I, I always found that so interesting because 
it's, it's so contrarian to like, I don't know, the past 60 years of business, but it does start to define what, you know, servant leadership looks like of yeah. you serving the team. And so I think that the best leaders understand what every single person on the team does in their organization does so that you can put the puzzle together. Interesting. So it's like that empathetic nature is what enables those pieces to come together. Yeah. And I, and I think you, you come into an organization with, yeah, with definite biases because of like the expertise and the niches that you grew up in, right? Like, you know, when I led marketing and when I sat in the CMOC, like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a digital first, social first CMO, right? I'm not a brand first, TV first, radio first, <laughs> print first CMO. And so, you know, but the, but the thing is, it's that that doesn't mean that Hill City didn't run print. We, we still made a magazine. You know, it didn't mean Hill City didn't run out of home. We still made out of home. The difference is, is I didn't make those first. I made those as connection points to our digital platforms. Mm-hmm. How did I make sure our QR codes, our social feeds, et cetera, resembled what out of home was showing so that it does seem interconnected mm-hmm. versus, versus another type of CMO would say, we're going to make this campaign. It's going to go on TV during prime time. Uh, everything's locked in. Good. Oh, wait, we should probably give the assets to the social team, <laughs> you know, and you can actually pinpoint yep. every single fortune 500 company that totally, does totally. And, and then you could pinpoint the type of CMO that sits in that seat and you can actually see that come to life. You can yeah. see, Oh yeah, it looks like the social team got the assets probably last night. Yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Let's put so, the 30 second spot on Facebook. Why not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's different, right? I think that the more the more that you have social first, digital first CMOs come into come into the leadership positions, or I also argue this, or as the social position becomes more in a, of an executive position, which it is, it, mm-hmm. it is very much becoming that, like a head of comms or a head of brand you're starting to see maturity in how a business operates around that organization to make them integrated and to make them a part of that conversation way earlier than before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I want to, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the, the, the topic of the episode is emotional connections through digital platforms. So, you know, building emotional connections, you know, we're talking like brand 101, right? <laughs> in order for a brand to build an emotional connection, they have to understand their consumers deeply, right? How can, what can brands do to gain an understanding of what's going on in the world of of consumers? Is there an approach that you'd recommend or something that you've done in the past that you thought was, you know, really, really useful? I think one of the, one of the unsaid and underused partnerships, any brand can have over social is one with their customer service team. And the reason why I say this is because many brand teams work with influencers, right? Like you give them products, they post it and everyone's happy. Um, the influencer doesn't care about the product really. Like they, they got it for free. It was wonderful. Um, but if the product breaks, if the product doesn't work out for them, eh, it's free. Like why, like, I'm not gonna tell anybody, that's fine. Mm-hmm. When it comes to an actual customer that spent their hard earned money buying that product, and if it does, if that product doesn't work out for them, they're gonna have way more of a vested interest in making sure you know that. Mm-hmm. And it's your job not to just solve that problem, but help, but to take feedback in so that it doesn't happen anymore. And you take that feedback in, so then you can address problems before they even occur or ask them like, what do you like to do? Maybe I can suggest a new, pro- a new product for you, or maybe we could create a product for you. That's what we did at Hill City. Um, and I think the, the partnership between a brand team and a customer service team is so underused that the brands that do understand it right. And I think Airbnb has done an incredible job at this, even like long after I left, but they truly understand the two-way conversation of a brand speaking to you and brand speaking with you, right? As they speak with you. They understand every single host and guest desires, needs, wants, problems, etc. So when they do output creative, it's more empathetic. It's more resemblant of the actual guest and host experience versus a brand that doesn't do that creates fiction. And so I, I think that you create emotional connections over digital by just using social in a way 
that truly has differentiated social media from literally any type of media ever before that, and that's it being social. And that goes right back to the partnership between a brand team and a customer service team. Interesting. Yeah, I think about how when I was working in the apparel space, um, how there a lot of businesses aren't set up like that. And the, the, the one, the one that I was working at had, there, there was, there's a decent line of communication there, but, it, but it, you know, it was something we had to work to grow stronger. And I think, you know, what I think about with social as a whole, it, it just in general is, you know, social started out as this one little piece of marketing, but now social touches HR for hiring employment brand. It touches customer service. You have people who are, are customer service folks who are used to sending emails and answering the phone and are now being expected to use emojis via DM on Instagram or whatever it is, right? And so it's interesting to see how social has just kind of like infected the entire organization and has become a, a skill that doesn't just sit within marketing. It's almost like, okay, can you use Microsoft Word? Great. Can you use like, can you use your computer? Great. Now, can you communicate on social? Great. That's like another kind of skill that is, is being required. Oh, for sure. I, I think it's just, it's, it's a mindset, right? It's like, it's not just about what can we output to the consumer base to incentivize them to buy, but instead, what levers do we have to actually go and market to, to understand who they are, to take in feedback, build product with them, um, and create that dialogue where eventually that actually creates loyalty. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that, I think that before social media, everybody loved, everybody loved Zappos, everybody loved Nordstrom's, uh, is because you can, you, you just, they understood you. If you someone was wrong with the product, without question, they would take it back and return it for you, right? That, and that built a ton of loyalty. I think Table Stakes today is doing that, but it's also being able to respond, being able to understand what these people want and being able to act, like, have them ask questions and you answer them in a timely manner, no matter what time of the day or night it is, right? I think that builds loyalty now. That is the same type of transaction as me going to Zappos and saying, the shoe didn't work out, can I return it? And they say, yeah, no questions that. Mm-hmm. And so I think, I think that emoti- emotional connection builds that loyalty and it builds that, what I like to call like that irrational love for a brand. The, yep. thing, that, the thing that drives loyalty way past logic to where, People line up to buy pairs of pairs of Air Maxes, mm-hmm. you know, to, to where people bu- to where people line up to buy the iPhone when when really like if you think about it like there are other phones that are better than that right mm-hmm. and so and so I think that I think being able to uh, being able to drive that type of loyalty and love through just a two way conversation is something that um, is a brand lever even though it doesn't feel very traditional like a brand lover. Mm-hmm. Well, it's so funny you bring, up, bring that up. Like I, I am admittedly an irrationally irresponsible Apple brand lover. Like yeah, they can see, go. whatever, and I'm just like, I know this is bad, but take my money. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't even yeah. know why I want it, but just take it. <laughs> and it's because, it's because you fell in love with everything they stand for, the values of the brand, the aesthetic, all that stuff, but also just like the experience. Mm-hmm. Of, of the brand and what i'm really describing is you experiencing the brand it's like it's like yeah. customer service isn't just like something that happens but instead like that's a that is definitely a brand experience mm-hmm. and if if you go into an outfit store and you love like the aesthetic the smell like the, the the service like the product but then you go online and you tweet at them and they tweet at you like something crazy that's a disruption in the experience, right? Yeah. Therefore, everything has to be on brand. Everything has to be premium. And I think that that's why customer service or things like customer service are such an extension of the brand that is a brand team cannot live with them and shouldn't live with them. Mm-hmm. And or shouldn't, I mean, shouldn't not live with them. Yeah. Yeah. There, there can't be that disconnect. Totally. Yeah. There has to be that consistency across the board. I, I completely agree. I want to I want to talk a little bit about a, a, a buzzword in marketing, and I want to get your yeah. thoughts on it. And the okay. one that comes to word that I feel like anytime it gets said, I just like groan a little bit. And and wow. but I'd love to get your take. The word authenticity. Oh, <laughs> like I feel like that's a word that has been thrown around in marketing about authentic experiences, and and I think it definitely is a buzzword. But 
how can like what does authenticity mean and how can brands use tech to kind of create that right because i think traditionally authenticity is like we're authentic we're having a conversation together when you insert maybe a tech barrier that becomes more difficult or it's not as authentic but i wanted to get your thoughts on that because i think you probably have an interesting take on this i mean yeah i think authenticity is such a bs word right now it's like it's it's like a slang term for for not being weird or not being like not being real right it's like i think that's it's it's definitely a slang term for 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 that i think authenticity is also a scapegoat for for doing things a certain way right i think that brands should present themselves in a manner that represents their values as a company actually as a brand but as literally a company meaning the employees consumers etc and one that elevates everything around it and if i want to think about like the true purpose of the word authentic it's it's not about creation it's not about creation it's about curation it's like how are and like this is very social media but like curation of a brand is not creating content to put on your instagram feed it's getting all the people that tagged you and elevating them as mm-hmm. your content to me that's i guess is in the original definition of the word that's authentic because that mm-hmm. is not the brand that's not the brand that's not the employees but that is just real people that love the product and those people are more important i believe than the brand itself because they create the brand their experiences with the with, with the company that create the advocacy it's their word of mouth that with, that will get more people in through referrals, right? And so I think it's authentic as a buzzword for for brands to to do things that are just different from what they're used to doing. But nine times out of ten, they just do it. They do it in a way that just doesn't feel right. It's like you know, it's like it's like a, a lot of times brand brands are like, oh yeah, this is gonna be this is gonna be a very authentic spot, and then. It's about like people having like a serious conversation about something. And it just feels like when your parents talk to you about, about like bad grades or something like puberty, <laughs> it's just like, you're like, oh, this is so uncomfortable. Like, I, I, I don't know why this conversation is happening. Yeah. Um, that, that is not authentic to me. That's not authentic to me at all, but instead very embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, I, I, I mean, I, I agree with, with that. And, and, I want to I want to kind of continue down this train of thought about about brands. Do you have any good or bad examples of brands that have done a really good or bad job of creating emotional connections through digital platforms? I think that many of the DTC brands that you see today, the Caspers, the Ways, uh, the Warby Parkers, Outdoor Voices, etc., all of those companies are built on the back of you know, emotive and digital connections, you know, through, through social media. It's like, mm-hmm. and this is before any of them had stores, right? I think that, so they've always had to build that emotional appeal in very crowded marketplaces. Um, and I think that what they've done really well is they made the experience very seamless to get what you want, mm-hmm. but they've also created content brands out of each other. I think that what you expect from them isn't just a service or a transaction to get a product, but instead you, you go to them for inspiration. You go to them. Um, sometimes you go to them when like a world event happens and you're like, Oh, something just happened. I'm going to go to a ways, you know, Twitter feed because I want to see what statement they just made because they're normally pretty on top of things. Think about that for a second. Just think about that. It's so crazy to me that in 2020, we would something some some economic or world event would happen, and the first thing you think about is you go to a suitcase brand Twitter feed. <laughs> if you want to talk about an emotional connection, they have established that emotional connection where that's that's what you think about. You don't think about oh, I want to turn on this news channel first, or I want to do that. Like no, I want to go see. Many people do this. I want to go see what's on Twitter because my brands, the people that I follow, they're likely making statements, and sometimes mm-hmm. more times than not, that's how people are getting their news. And it's just crazy to me that, that that is the level of emotional and loyalty and connection that consumers have with these brands because of the experiences they've built for them online. They've made it so easy for them to, to get their product. They've made it so easy for them to advocate on behalf of the brand. Um, and 
in exchange, the brand has likely elevated their voice. The brand has likely, you know, rewarded them in, in some way, shape, or form, uh, made them feel as if they're part of a community, uh, or introduced them to a community. And because of that, you now so quickly have built this irrational love for these brands that something happens in the world, you go to their Twitter feed. Like, oh yeah, something happened in the world. I'm going to go to my eyeglass makers, uh, Twitter feed right now because <laughs> I want to see what they're saying. Or I want to go to my mattress, my favorite mattress company. Like, I want to see what they're saying about, like, the world at large right now. Yeah. Well, I even think about, you know, it, it almost being, like, a la Town Square where it's, it's okay, something in the world happens and I'm going to go to Twitter because, like, I want to see who is saying what, right? So it's, like, so it's almost like yeah. that surprise and delight. It's, like, it's like I'm going to go there because maybe they haven't said anything yet, but I want to be there because when Casper says something or when Away says something or when... Wendy's or whatever brand, right? Like I want to see what they're going to say there. So that's like, a, that's a really interesting concept. It's super interesting, right? And it's like a form of entertainment. Mm -hmm. It's so much a form of entertainment. <laughs> and I think it's, it's just, it's so crazy to me because I think, think about this, like, let's say like this is back in the eighties, like you would never think like, oh wow, like this, 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 this crazy world event is happening with the Olympics. And I want to go see what Mazda is saying right now on the newspaper. <laughs> like, like what, what are they saying right now? Like I, I, I demand them to say something. We demand brands to say something. now. Like we demand it, not just for entertainment purposes, but because we want to know if they are on our side or not. Yeah. And I think that's such an interesting, it's such an interesting, interesting dynamic that didn't exist before because I could tell you right now, 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, or forever as long as brands have existed. Do you really think, in the 1930s, people really cared what Wrigley's had to say. No, like, no, no. But people, people do now. I'll yep. tell you that. Oh, yeah. People do now. People do now. Well, yeah, it's interesting. It's a, it's this idea of the personification of brand, right? And and exactly. if exactly. if the brand is the person, you know, okay, if I'm a person and I feel this way about something, I want to see how you feel about it and how that brand feels about it, and and and. And I think you know, it's so funny when you started going through all the different decades there. I immediately, all I thought was like typical crisis comms, stay quiet. <laughs> exactly. Like that's what exactly. most, most brands have, have done. But now it's like you, you get in trouble for not, like you have to have a stand, like you sure. can't ignore it. Right. And I think that has created a ton of discomfort, but also necessary discomfort and like generally good for the Commonwealth, I think as a whole, in terms of like humanity, it's really interesting that how that has progressed over time. And I think, you know, based on the current events now, whether it's the, the COVID thing, Black Lives Matter, you know, so there's so many different things now that are happening in the world that are forcing these brands to be personified more so than ever before. Traditionally, you would always think of a brand to function in, in very certain ways, right? You have your advertising, mm -hmm. you have your media, where you buy, where you buy like print and like ad space. And then you have like, you know, user feedback. There's like kind of like those, like, like three, three little parts. Because of social media, you then now have like a digital team, like a website team, right? Um, and now splitting off further from that, it's like ongoing, ongoing brand communication. Like what is, what is the brand now doing in culture that's representative of the values that make sure that we are always on the forefront? It's kind of like a newsroom, essentially. Mm -hmm. It's like, how are we staying up to conversation? What's happening around the brand? And essentially what that is, it's like, that's just ongoing brand building. That's, that's, that's literally what it is. The voice of a brand is now a part of the product. And if the, pro, if, if the voice does not represent you know, the community at large, or the values of the community at large, the, the community will then demand the product is, is then revisited and, and, and changed. Mm -hmm. and so I, I think that, Brand as a whole is evolving in such a way and at such a pace that it's, it's pushing brands that are a hundred years old, you know, to, to move at, at the speed of, of a news cycle or in a news organization, which mm -hmm. is super interesting to me. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I, I think about, there, well, there's two things that come to mind. The first one is what you said about newsrooms. I always used to say this when, when I was still working on, on the social side of things is the internet doesn't have an off button. I always used to say that to my parents, actually, because, you know, it would be like, I'd have to do something. And they'd be like, well, aren't you done work? And I'm like, the internet doesn't turn off. So there's that. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing that what you just said about brands, I can't help but think about the phrase, get good or get gone. 
Like this is yeah. just going to be like a, a correction of like, if you haven't been, if, if this change is happening and this is how consumers are behaving, this is what consumers want, uh, adapt or die, get good or get gone. Like those are just the things that, that come to my mind, uh, you know, as we continue to kind of go through this, this shift. And I think that, you know, like I said a little earlier with COVID, with Black Lives Matter, those are going to be accelerants to this. It's going to expose uh, the brands that aren't, prepared for this and already has exposed some brands that aren't prepared for yep. it. I recently wrote an article that what COVID-19 really exposed for a marketing team is how underfunded their social teams are. Um, mm -hmm. And the reason why I say that is because at the beginning of the pandemic, marketing teams just shut down, pulled all the money from, you know, from, from their advertising upfront deals. Uh, and they shut down out of home, they shut down print, they shut down TV, and marketing teams were actually like laid off, right? The one team that wasn't laid off and the one team that continued to have pressure put on them was the social team. And guess what? Odds are, odds are, the brand and marketing team, even the executive leadership team didn't consider that like a necessity until yeah. that was their only channel along. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing too, with nothing else going on, all these executives, all these teams, all they did was just play on their phones and just, tweak and, and, and nitpick, you know, the, the social media strategy. And, and w one of the things that I saw really, what was really interesting, um, was that I started to see job postings for heads of social. I started to see job postings for heads of social across many different brands. And before, even when I was ahead of social, so when I was ahead of social, like the, the, the requirements were like 10 plus years of experience, et cetera, et cetera. Like I saw these job postings and they were like 10 to 15 years of experience. They're looking for, they're, they're looking, they're looking for seasoned executives to run social because they realize we've understaffed, we've under leadership, we've underfunded these teams. And now more than ever, we, we now understand the true value that they're bringing for not, not just the growth engine, but as a brand communications engine that I think the pandemic really accelerated the digital transformation for so many brands where they're mm -hmm. just like, Oh wait, like we actually need someone that could go, you know, hand to hand in a board meeting. We don't, don't need some college intern anymore. We yeah. need someone, ex we need executive presence. And so I think that happened. And then the second part that happened is, you know, obviously the, the racial injustice that's happening in America today, where not only did they under, like not only did these companies understand that their social teams were underfunded, maybe immature, but now these brands are being demanded upon to make it very mature statement on behalf of an entire community that if you get it wrong, if you literally get it wrong, stakes are high. You will be, you, you will be skewered. And the thing there is, is that these conversations always should have been had like six months ago, eight months ago, a year ago, you know? And, and I think that's one of the things that's been so interesting to me is that they, I think you're going to see a, a rise in the executive presence of heads of social, yeah. um, like a like a head of comms, like a head of brand, because they control so much now that when the world stops, you now know the only team that keeps going is going to be your social team. Yeah, yeah, no, I I think I think the one thing that comes to my mind there is how difficult it's going to be for brands to find that person that you just described. Right? Yeah. Like yeah. <laughs> you, you were probably one of the few who I would actually think of who comes to mind where I'm like, oh, Toto would be the guy to like go do that. But I mean, yeah, there is this, it is this like, you know, this breadth of knowledge needed as well as the depth of knowledge needed yeah. organization using tech, but tech in a way that's deployed in different areas of the business, playing mm -hmm. translator with different levels of the org. Like it's, it's not an easy thing. And, and, but I yeah. think what, but to your point though, this has accelerated the need for it. It's just, it hadn't been as clear before to the majority, I think of others, right? Like you and I get yeah. it because we worked in social, we've been head uh -huh. of social, like we get it. But I think that um, now so many other people see it as clearly, which I think yeah. is. Yeah, uh, it, it could because I, I think they needed a proof of concept. I think they needed to see it for themselves. I think they needed to, to fail, mm -hmm. you know, to, to be able to see what they needed, right? Uh, because before, before, I think it was just, you know, a head of social or a head of digital just advocating like, hey, we need more resources. I, I need, I need better resources. I need to be able to pay like for really experienced people. And then I was like, yeah, you know, you're, you're making tweets. That's not a real thing, right? Like you're, you're making these TikTok videos. But I think, I think, um, I think what this 
what everything over the past like six months has guys done is just accelerated the need for the maturity. And, and, and you're right, it is extremely hard to find these people. And the reason why it's hard to find these people is because that level of misunderstanding of what a head of social should do and the experience and the maturity that, that it takes to be in that, that role now has really made heads of social look elsewhere to find elevated executive experience. Mm-hmm. Like, take a look at like all your, all your head of comms, right? They've been comms people for their entire career. But comms is a very, is a very longstanding tradition and a very longstanding industry. Social is not. Mm-hmm. I think that ch- I think that changes now because I think that you're going to have heads of social stay in social roles. You're going to have them, right? I think I, I look at the head of social for Apple, John Solomon. He's only been in social roles, right? Like, and, and and I think like he will continue, like he will likely, I think, like continue in those roles because I think like it, it shows trajectory, but it also shows maturity. It shows mm-hmm. just the depth of knowledge, like like you said. And to find these people, you have to pluck them back from you know, VP of marketing roles or VP of brand roles to say, listen, yeah. we need executive presence in the head of social role. Like, please come back because we need like a, a real, real head of social, yeah. not just one that, not just one that we just plucked off the street, you know? And, 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 and so that's what I think really changes throughout all of this. Yeah. I think the, the, it makes a ton of sense organizationally. I just wonder, I can't help but wonder how, you know, traditional CMO or VP of marketing who would usually have a head of social under them on their org feel about that. Some of them might be like, yes, awesome. Like I, I need a, you know, a partner at the table when I'm, you know, talking yeah. with, with boards or whoever it is. But the, also I can't help but think that some, some of them might be, well, well, no, like I need to be in control of this and I need to keep this kind of under me. So what are, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, uh, and welcome to my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, that's, that's kind of like, that's kind of the interesting thing, right? It's like, that's, that's part of the gray area of the mm-hmm. evolving nature of social. I think, I think you're going to have, and more so than not, you're going to have CMOs understand what they're not good at, mm-hmm. understand like they have gaps in knowledge and, and bring and experience head of social to the table to work with the executive team, you know, and, and luckily for me, that's what I had at Airbnb. Yeah. Like Jonathan Mildenhall, fantastic CMO, you know, brought me along in those conversations because he was like, Eric, what should we do on social? Right. I think you're, I think you're having a lot of those conversations now um, that, that are bringing heads of social up in the experience level to the executive level um, so that they can't help navigate a company to so those other CMOs that are just like, no, I need to control everything. You know, the reality is, is that that could work for a certain amount of time, right? Yeah. Another pandemic hits, everything shuts down and they're left on their own to run their social feed. Let's see how you fare. Yeah. Like, let's, let's see how you swim, right? I think that not, I think we need to be more self-aware as an industry to say, like, if you're not good at something, hire the people to, to, you know, to fill the holes. Mm-hmm. Like, you're only as good as your team. And so I... I I haven't, I haven't worked with any CMOs that have done that. Mm-hmm. That have been like, no, 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 I, I, I own everything. A lot of times they, they, they really have done it. Like they've really held the door open for me to, mm-hmm. to really express my knowledge. Um, but I do know friends that are heads of social that that have been, you know, you know, pushed down by that. And so, yeah, my, my, my encouragement for them is that change is coming. I think that. CMOs are now becoming more self-aware and how important it is to be active on social, how important it is to, to be involved, but also hire the experts. Um, because I, I think you see, like, this was a great litmus test for every single brand out there just to see, just to see how, how good your social strategy was in the past four months. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and the one thing that, that I think about is the market is the market, right? So like <laughs> the market doesn't care. The market is going to continue to change that way. And the, the, I think the, the CMOs who are going to be, you know, more strategic and have a better approach are going to be the ones that, that rise to the top. And the ones that are going to try and control everything are the ones that are probably going to struggle because of how fast things are changing and, and the new normal and that sort of thing. So, oh, yeah, for sure. So I want to switch, switch gears a little bit here. What are you most excited about when it comes to marketing right now? There's so many different things happening. What oh, gets man. you fired up when you're like, yeah, this is, 
This is what I'm excited for when it comes to marketing in 2020 and beyond. It's hard for me to answer that because I think that my answer four months ago would have been different than my answer now. Like, I think four months ago, I would have said that I'm really excited for more experiences to come from brands, um, meaning less traditional advertising, more experiential, more, more digital experiences, more, more brand levers throughout Twitch or, or, or through our live streaming services, like things like that, that, that I thought were really interesting that, that really extend the brand through more scale through digital. I think that still exists. I think that still exists to a certain extent. What are, but, but again, like I think what you and I are talking about, the most excited thing that I'm most, that I'm most, you know, amped about is to see the newfound energy in roles that I've held before, like I had a social role, like, like again, like it, it, it made me so proud. It made me so proud to see job, job descriptions open for heads of social roles with 10 to 15 years, mm-hmm. because that shows that there is a, 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 an investment going towards them. And when you have someone in that role that has experience, you start to see brands become digitally native. You can yeah. start to see brands then create experiences over digital platforms like a Twitch or you know, streaming services. Mm-hmm. And you start to see brands transform versus brands being so traditional and then hacking on digital. And so I, what makes me most excited really is the resurgence of, um, of creativity through social, um, through the new platforms that are coming up, like, like the TikToks, uh, the Twitches of the world, but also just the maturity of how brands will now be social first. Mm-hmm. Like, because I think that this pandemic has, has, has really put the emphasis on what it means to be a social first brand versus, oh no, we stopped everything. Like we, <laughs> we need to start, we, we need to start putting out tweets, you know? Uh, yeah. And, and it was funny to watch, man. It was, it was, it was funny to watch. I, I felt bad for the, for the, for my friends that, that were in social roles, but you know, that's why I wrote that article in Ad Week was just like, listen, I see you. Like, I know what you're going through. Um, but, but you should, but all, all of those people should know, like, and what I want, what I would encourage them to do is stay in, stay in those roles, stay in the social roles because help is coming. Yeah. You know, a lot of, like, a lot of my friends have, have had conversations with me about taking a step back from their VP of brand and VP of marketing roles to go back into social because, yeah. because, because I think that the level of expertise and, and our experience and just honestly, just the amount of fun that we had doing it, uh, versus other things. I think that I think there's going to be a lot more creativity to come. Yeah, no, well said. And I, I agree. I, I want to ask another quote. You kind of alluded to, to an answer for this, but I want to ask it to you in a different way. What's the biggest piece of advice that you have for marketers that they should be keeping top of mind right now? I think the biggest thing is, is that they need to understand there isn't a ladder. Like the ladder doesn't exist anymore. I think that there's this, there's this weird not weird. Uh, there's this, there's this misconception that you need to pay, do a certain, take a certain path, have certain jobs and continue on a war path towards CMO. And I'll tell them this. It's, uh, I've been in a CMO role after coming from a head of social role and it was a great role. It was a fantastic role and I, I loved being a CMO, but you have all the time in the world to become a CMO. Like you really do. Like I was in a rush to do it because I believed that there was a ladder and I needed to achieve it. But there's so much more that I, I, I wanted to achieve at Airbnb as, as a head of social. There's more than more that I wanted to achieve as a head of social for, for another brand and, and continue to see how I, how me, me and some others can, can push the industry forward, you know, to, so that we can become an executive role like the head of comms or the head of brand. Mm-hmm. And so my, my suggestion to these, you know, to people coming out is, Go for the heads of social, like go for the social roles because those are the roles that are going to be absolutely necessary in the future. Um, because social is going to be such a catch-all, you know, like stre- streaming services. I've I've heard are 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 social roles, like buy <laughs> buy media on on streaming services, which I think is ridiculous. But whatever. Um, but I think those types of channels are never going to go away. And yeah. so to be TV experts in it versus being an expert in radio or an expert in print. Um, I, I think to serve you really well and, and, and we need your energy. We need your creativity and who knows, maybe one day um, I'll come back and join you guys in it uh, because it was, it was one of my favorite roles. I, uh, and, and I think that reprising it 
uh, would bring me a lot of happiness uh, because <laughs> because I think that to do something that millions of people see engage with uh, is, is is a once in a career type feeling. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes me think back to my time at Red Bull, same type of thing where, yeah, you know, exactly. like when, when, when so- something you put out is seen by millions and millions of people, you're like, whoa, that's really cool. And it does kind of make you, well, it, yeah, like, cause I, I think about the, you know, that idea of like the rat race, right? Like the corporate ladder and whatever. And then there are times where like, you know, we would, we would do an activation or create a piece of content and it would go big. And I'd be like, that was awesome. Like that's, that's yeah. why we do it. It's like those people got excited about something that we were able to create that resonated with them in a different way, shape or form. So yeah, I, I that, that definitely hits, hits home for me as well. Right. As we start to wind down this episode, I want to, I always, I always ask this, how do you stay on top, like up to date and on top of business and marketing? Who are you following? What are you reading? What are you listening to? Yeah. I mean, I, I try to follow as many CMOs as I can. Some of them are not as active as others. Um, <laughs> you know, like a lot of my family, so, just, so they're not, no, they're not very active, but I also try to just stay in contact with peers that are in similar roles to mine that has, has similar career paths as mine. I think one of the best networks possible to get marketing and to understand marketing and to understand like the future of marketing is LinkedIn. Yeah. Like, I think that that's honestly, that's, that's one of the best networks to get that type of information. I think Twitter is okay with that, but people are really thoughtful on LinkedIn mm-hmm. and you just have to find like, you have to be part of the groups, right? Like you have to be part of like the ad week group or the Forbes group, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and those people, they cultivate information sharing and then you find the people who are like active, like super active, like, like yourself, man. I think, <laughs> I, th- I think you're a good follow. You're a solid follow. Like I appreciate that. Ask, <laughs> you always ask like really provocative questions. You always ask questions that are that aren't topical, which 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 I always appreciate. I, I think there's too much of that. Um, but you get marketers to think, and, and I think that having the, the the discourse and the conversation is what pushes our industry forward. And so mm-hmm. um, I think LinkedIn is probably one of the best resources uh, that you could possibly have as an aspiring marketer or as a marketer, you know, somewhere in their career. Yeah, well said. I completely agree. What's the best place for people to find you online? Uh, all my handles are the same at CODA. Get your boy up. Ask me questions. I just I just did an experiment in which I gave people my phone number to text me. Underestimated, I underestimated how many people would actually text me. How many people so, texted you? <laughs> too many, man. Look, like 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 I'm over kidding, over t- over ten, over twenty, over fifty, over a hundred people. Over a hundred. Yeah, over a hundred people. Uh, you can still find the post. Like, here's the thing. I will get to all of you. I will get to all of you. Um, I promise. Uh, I, I encourage you to text me though. And the reason why I want you to text me is because I want to help. I want to yeah. help. I want to, uh, I think mentoring is, is way too formal with like Zoom calls and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, this is on a Zoom call. But if, if you want to find me at Soda, hit me up on the socials or text me at 415-498-1191. Text me your question. Love it. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I, I always learn something when I talk to you and I, I really appreciate it. And I'm sure our audience will as well. So thank you. No, thank you, Charlie. I appreciate it, buddy. For show notes, other episodes, and more content, check out rightmetric.co. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks for listening.